Let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. <clears throat> Huge crowd showed up. Rob Rob made me admit that I was teaching last week, so nobody's here this week. <laughs> let's start with prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that we can come worship you and that you've brought us here safely. We thank you that you've invited us here. And uh, we just thank you that we get to um, uh, to study about you and study about people who have been your people. Father, we take it for granted that we can see. We take it for granted that we can read. Uh, we just thank you that you put these things on our plate. We ask this morning, please keep us from error. And uh, please cause this to be a beneficial study. Please, please work in us and uh, bring us to repentance. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, this morning we're going to start, I can figure out. We're going to start a book uh, talking about some biographies, and you might be wondering why we're doing this. Well, John Piper, John Piper, when he decided, he says that when he decided to become a preacher, he really was not trained as a preacher, he was more of an English major, <clears throat> and that he thought, so what do I have to go through to be a preacher? And he decided what he would do was he would study biographies of people who were big names in, in Christianity and see whether they had some of the same problems he was having and what they had to struggle with. And in the true John Piper fashion, he after he did this, he wrote seven books. So here they are. <laughs> 21, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. And uh, so I, I really don't know why this decision was made, but, but we are going to be, you know, I'm just guessing. We're, we're going to be studying biographies of big names in Christianity. And I think it's important for us to do this, and one reason it's important is that it's good, it's good for all of us to know that we're not the only person who can't dribble a basketball. And every once in a while, you need to step back and think about that, that the big names in Christianity had the same problems that you had. And uh, they, they're just as messed up as you are, and they need Christ just as much as you do. And, uh, and so we're going to start today. Uh, we're going to talk about somebody. I, I want to talk about first why I chose this particular person. When I was a, when I was a sophomore, in college. I took an English literature class and I really enjoyed that class. It was one of my favorite college classes. And uh, and in that semester we had to write a paper on our favorite poet of all the poets we talked about that semester. My favorite poet that semester, the person I chose was John Dunny. It's spelled Don. I've heard it pronounced that way but I think if I remember correctly it was Dunny. You pronounce that Dunny. But it was 53 years ago, so my memory might have dimmed a little bit. <laughs> and uh, it was right shortly after Dunny lived that I was taking English. So uh, anyway, when I saw a poet, when I saw a poet, I thought, okay, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to choose this guy and talk about this poet. And uh, the guy we're going to talk about is William Cooper. Spelled Cowper, it's pronounced Cooper. 
So if you if it and so I know this one's right. This is recent memory. So uh, the guy's name was William Cooper. He was. Uh, some people say he was the greatest of all the English writers, and you've never heard of him. Uh, you would have to go some to be the greatest of all English writers. That, that would not be a rope that was easy to hold. And uh, um, that one of the reasons is the people he influenced, I think is maybe why they say that. <clears throat> um, he, uh, um, he also wrote some great letters. And there was a time at, at one point where, where in some writing class they used the letters of William Cooper and said, this is how you write a letter. So he must have, uh, I, I haven't read the letters, I've read just a little bit of his poetry. But before we go there, why would it be important? Why would we want to study poetry and why would we want to study a person who is, uh, who, uh, is a poet? I mean, what's so great? These are, I used this in care group one time. I'll use it on you now. I don't know how it was really received in care group. These are the words from a Joni Mitchell song. Joni Mitchell's, did, I don't know if you ever paid attention. Joni Mitchell wrote some great songs and, and has, and probably still is, may still be. Um, this is A Car on a Hill. I've been sitting up waiting for my sugar to show. I've been listening to the sirens and the radio. He said it'd be over three hours ago. I've been waiting for his car on the hill. What picture is in your mind right now? What picture is in your mind? You have this young lady. She's sitting in her apartment by herself. It's lonely. She's up past her bedtime. She's waiting for this guy to come over. There's nothing going on. She's just listening to the radio. She can hear the traffic out on the streets. You're beginning to get a sense of despair and loneliness that this guy said he'd be here three hours ago and he's still not here. And, and you're also beginning to get a sense that he's not going to show. And after, after 40 years, I still have trouble listening to this song. She said all that in about 36 words. You can say things in verse that are hard to say in other ways. And, uh, and that's why poetry is, is, and I know you guys read a lot of poetry, and, and I don't really have to explain this, but that's why poetry is, uh, is important. <clears throat> the man's name is, uh, is William Cooper. He was born in 1731. 1730s in, uh, <clears throat> in Britain were a time of license. The, the kings and all the aristocrats lived for their own pleasure. And uh, the church was, was uh, you know, you had the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, and the ministers were not really feeding their flocks. These were good-paying jobs, and they were jobs with a lot of prestige that the... Uh, the ministers just had those jobs. They were looking for to spend their, their money and their time on their own leisure. And, and so it was a tough time for the church. There was one, there was, you know, evangelicalism in England was new. 
one evangelical pastor that I heard about went into London in like the 1730s, and he was the only evangelical pastor in the city of London, which at that time I think was about 4 million people. <clears throat> what happened is you had the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, riding around the country presenting the gospel, and you had George Whitfield, who was uh, on the Calvinistic side of things. And, uh, and so these guys were all contemporaries of William Cooper's. Uh, there were stories of how Charles Wesley would go into a town to preach the gospel, and he would barely escape with his life. And then he would go back a year later, and there would be a thriving church in that town. It was a time of growth for the evangelical uh, movement in England. Uh, Cooper, William Cooper says as a child he, could, he would see people going out to the moor fields at 4 o'clock in the morning with lanterns to listen to George Whitfield. I, I wondered about that. Why, you know, what did they have to do to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning? But they probably went to bed with the chickens. So waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning, they're, they're already awake. You know, <laughs> they had their eight hours in. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, but... It was a, a great thing, a great time of growth. Another one of his contemporaries was a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which I don't know if you've heard of him recently. Uh, Rousseau said that all children are born innocent and that it is society that messes them up, so you need to defund the police and spend the money on making society a better place so kids don't get messed up to begin with. So while Cooper was in England doing his thing, Rousseau's in France spreading that, and, uh, and Rousseau was, uh, gave birth to the French Revolution, which both the American Revolution and the French Revolution took place in William Cooper's time. In fact, uh, Benjamin Franklin read uh, William Cooper's poetry and gave it a good review. When Cooper was about 27 years old, Jonathan Edwards, the American preacher, passed away. So all this stuff that's going around. And uh, we look at old dates in history. This is something I always regret about all the history class. Well, those history classes I was required to take. Uh, that I did not understand exactly when somebody said, well, so-and-so lived at this time right here. What I never understood until later was, Oh, look at all the stuff that was going on around that person, and uh, and how how things have been shaped by these people who lived then. <clears throat> Cooper's uh, Cooper's father, well, his grandfather was a member of Parliament, had been a member of Parliament. Cooper came from a well, very well connected family. I mean, they were these people. They weren't, a, a, what, they weren't in this huge upper class, the big wealthy families. They were right on the fringe of it, and, and they had some connections. His father was a rector in a church, and he was a chaplain to King George II. And so if you're putting all those English kings together, George II doesn't mean anything to you. George III means something to you because he was the king at the time of the American Revolution. So this was right before George III. His mother was Anne Dunny. She was John Dunny. She was a descendant of John Dunny. So John Dunny had lived about a, uh, he lived in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And, and uh, the thing about John Dunny was 
he, he, his poetry had a lot of Christianity in it. And uh, so if you've ever been to London, one of the things you'll see there is St. Paul's Cathedral. That's where John Dunny worked. I mean, it's just amazing when you think about all the people who lived right there, the things that went on. So if, if John Dunny lived in the late 1500s, early 1600s, who was his contemporary? What other famous person lived about that time? Well, it was William Shakespeare. Okay. And what was the hot new Bible translation that William Cooper read? King James Version. Okay. All these things went on right there in that, that hundreds, 150-year period. And uh, so anyway, his mother claimed descendancy from John Dunny. Mr. and Mrs. Cooper had seven children. Only two of those children survived infancy. Uh, one was William Cooper, had a brother named John. John was born when William was about six years old. A few days later, his mother died. So here's William Cooper. He was the third in line. So two babies had died, and then William survives. Three more babies die. William Cooper watches. As somewhere in his young life, he sees three babies die. His, bro his brother is born, and, and then his mother dies. His father uh, enrolled him at Pittman, Pittman's boarding school. You know, his father was going to have to find a wet nurse to take care of this new baby. And then he had a six-year-old boy that he didn't know what to do with. It wasn't unusual at that time for people of this class to enroll their kids in boarding schools. And uh, so, you know, if you said something to his dad about you don't want to do that, his dad might have thought you were nuts. You know, like, of course I'm going to. All my friends do the same thing. You know, for us, it's kind of like, oh, don't do that. But a terrible, one, one thing that, that terrible about this was here's this six-year-old boy. He's just lost his mother. He's been enrolled in a boarding school. A 15-year-old boy began to abuse him. He apparently became the target for this 15-year-old boy. So think about that, a sophomore in high school beating up on a first grader. And uh, Cooper said that he got to where he could not look above this guy's knee. He didn't want to make eye contact with him. He didn't even dare look above his knee. He got to know him by the buckle of his shoe as well as by anything else. One thing that Piper brought up is is we don't know the nature of this bullying. We don't know the nature of this abuse. But it surely was going to have a huge effect on Cooper later in life. He, uh, <clears throat> um, he was in this school until he was about 10 years old, and then he went to the Westminster School. The Westminster School at that time, at, he went at the age of 10. The Westminster School was was the prestigious school to go to. That's where you sent your kids. It's where the well-connected sent their kids. Today, everybody sends their kids to Eton. I don't know if you've heard of Eton. And, and he, uh, I found this interesting. Something like nine prime ministers since World War II graduated from Eton High School. Boris Johnson's a product of Eton High School. And, uh, and you know, when I watch Boris Johnson, I can see it. I can just see that in Boris Johnson. He's been groomed from a very young age. Well, that's what you did back then. You sent him to Westminster School, which is still there. 
But Eton is now the the great place to go. The teachers there uh, at Westminster were not good teachers. And when they did show up, they didn't always show up. When they did show up, they were often drunk. So, so Cooper and his friends got together and taught themselves. And they taught Latin. They, they, he learned French, Latin, Greek, and Italian. And, uh, you know, between the ages of 10 and 17. Kind of reminds me of my high school days. <laughs> when I took several classes. <laughs> but <clears throat> uh, later in life, he would, uh, he would translate Homer. You know, this is something I don't ever think about, but back then, if you wanted to read Homer, you were going to read it in the original language. And uh, there was a, a, a French mystic named, uh, her name was Madame Guillaume, which uh, the reason I don't speak French is no one would be able to understand it, but uh, she was, uh, apparently this was kind of like a charismatic movement in France. It was called quietism, and uh, she she got in a lot of trouble for some of the things she wrote. And he translated her writing into English for some reason. <clears throat> 1749, so he's... Uh, uh, 18 years old, he is apprenticed to a solicitor. His father wanted him to be a lawyer, and so he goes out to become a lawyer, um, and he lives the next 10 years, he lives a life of leisure. He did not want to be a lawyer. He did not apply himself to being a lawyer. He, he admitted that he was lazy and that he didn't want to do it, and apparently he didn't. He met weekly with a group of uh, ne'er-do-wells called the Nonsense Club. These were trust fund kids who didn't have to worry about money. And uh, they would meet on Thursday night for dinner and drinks, and they would critique uh, literature. And uh, maybe that's about as far as it got, probably with most of them. He was not a believer at this time. In 1752, he... Uh, went into a terrible despondency, and he would spend weeks staring out a window. Do you guys remember one time when we were talking about a Paul Tripp book? And uh, I forget the name of the book now. But the uh, I, I mentioned that that people in deep, deep depression, the, some of the work they've done with people in depression, and they had taken people who were staring out a window saying, I want to die, and they were... They, this was the University of Pennsylvania, and they were using uh, these new methods to bring people out of those deep states of despondency to back to life. Well, this is where William Cooper was, sitting in a chair, staring out at windows. In uh, 1752, when this depression set in, he said, Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror, and rising up in despair. In consolation, he read some poems by a poet named uh, George Herbert. Herbert lived late 1500s, early 1600s, about the same time as John Dunny and, and William Shakespeare. Herbert said, he's talking about God. He's talking about God in, in, in the Herbert poem. And in the Herbert poem, he said, if I give him the gift, he will worship the gift rather than the giver. So he concludes the poem 
He says, let him be rich and weary, that at least, if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. Weariness, weariness may toss him to my breast. If you, if you wonder why you go through some of the things you go through, um, God uses these things to toss us back onto his breast. Um, Cooper went to a town in, in the south end of England. There's a town in the south end of England called Southampton. Um, it, is, it is by the sea. It's near the ocean. It's a port. There's a port there. And uh, he goes down there and he says, it's as if another sun had been kindled. And so he began to use changes of scenery to, to uh, try to lift his moods. So... This worked for him at Southampton, and now he's, he's using that quite a bit to, to try to lift his moods. In 1749, from 1749 to 1756, so he's, uh, uh, he is in love with his cousin Theodora. And to us, that sounds kind of weird. Apparently, uh, it wasn't unusual for cousins to be in love with each other. And they wanted to be, engaged, uh, to be married. They were engaged for seven years. Her father uh, said he forbade the marriage. After seven years, he finally forbade the marriage. And there's a lot of speculation on why he did this, and no one really knows, but possibly one reason for it was that Theodora's father, this uncle, uh, suffered a lot from depression. Theodora suffered from depression. It was a big thing in the family to suffer from depression. And, uh, and, and apparently there was quite a bit of mental illness in the family. And the father saw what was happening here and he said, this, this won't go well. Plus Theodora uh, had grown up in wealth and uh, she was used to wealth and William Cooper was not ever going to be a wealthy man. And he, he may have seen, you know, my daughter is not going to be happy with this man. So he forbade the marriage and broke them up. Uh, neither of them ever married. Theodora uh, never married, and, uh, but she later she would send money to Cooper when Cooper needed money, and she even at one point put him on a stipend. And Cooper never knew where that money came from. It was anonymous gifts, which I find to be a little, a little strange. You're receiving this regular money in the mail, and you don't say, well, I wonder where this is coming from. And, uh, but, but that did happen. Cooper wrote 19 poems. He called her Delia in the poems. Uh, they, were, they were definitely about her, and he referred to her as Delia. <clears throat> Somewhere in, in uh, 1759, he's 28 years old, he becomes the Commission of Bankrupts. Nice position in, in London. And then in 1763, at the age of 32, they make him the clerk of the Journals of Parliament. So you're going to take care of the Journals of Parliament. You've got that position. That would be a nice place to be at the age of 32. And he got there because of his father's connections. Uh, but then something happened to him, which was the worst thing that could possibly happen to any human being, uh, Senate confirmation hearings. 
he was going to have to, some of his father's enemies said, uh, we can't let this guy have this position. I'm thinking maybe some people probably knew his reputation and maybe thought he wouldn't be able to do it, but uh, they, were, they didn't like his father anyway, uh, maybe on the wrong side of the aisle there. And uh, so they were going to make him, make Cooper appear in public confirmation hearings. So Cooper's life is going to be exposed to the public. He was a very, uh, very shy person, very self-conscious person. He says at this time, and one of the memories that came to him was when he was 11 years old, get this, when he was 11 years old, his father gave him a treatise on self-murder. Asked him to read a treatise on self-murder at the age of 11, in which the uh, person who wrote this uh, said that he thought uh, self-murder would be a good idea. And, uh, and Cooper's father, after he read it, Cooper's father said, so what did you think? And Cooper said, I think I don't agree with this guy. And his father didn't reply. His father didn't say anything. So Cooper drew from that the conclusion that his father maybe wanted him to agree with the guy. So this, at the time that Cooper is going to be put in this public display, uh, all this comes to his mind. And he, uh, he, he uh, at one point in his life, people, people pretty much agree that Cooper at times was actually insane. He tries three different ways to commit suicide. And the third time he almost succeeded. He hanged himself with a garter. And he, he became unconscious, and the garter broke, and he fell to the floor. And one of the maids came in and discovered him. <clears throat> so at this time, he was committed to a, a, an asylum called St. Albans. He decided he was guilty of attempted murder. Not, not guilty of suicide, he was guilty of attempted suicide, which was just as bad. Uh, there has been a time... In the past, I don't know a lot about this, but, but that suicide was equated to the sin of Judas. And uh, so, so, for whatever reason, Cooper decided that he, his sin of, of attempted self-murder was worse than the sin of Judas. And because Judas had never received forgiveness, then he would not be able to receive forgiveness. And... Uh, so he carried that with him all his life. And St. Albans, the man who ran St. Albans was a man named Dr. Nathaniel Cotton. He was an evangelical believer. And uh, uh, um, Cooper would walk around the asylum. He would walk around the asylum going, I am damned, I am damned, I am damned. And... and uh, After about six months, he, uh, he came across a Bible on a bench, and he sat down to read. And he, he opened the Bible to uh, the 11th chapter of John and read about uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead. 
And he says his heart was softened, but it was not enlightened. He had a cousin named Martin Maydan. Now, are you getting all these names? You guys are taking notes, aren't you? <laughs> he had a cousin named Martin Maydan. Maydan was an evangelical preacher um, of some renown, actually, I think. And uh, he had been telling, he kept telling Cooper about original sin. He kept saying, William, you're not the only one, you know. This, there's this, this uh, we're, we're all under condemnation. And he told him about the all-atoning death of Christ. So uh, Cooper comes to, at one point, he comes to Romans 3.25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. He says, immediately, I received the strength in a, in a, uh, a thing called the memoir. He, he uh, gave a detailed account of his conversion. Immediately, I received the strength to believe it, and full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. Whatever my friend Maidan had said to me long before revived in all its clearness. So he came to Christ, and he stayed at St. Albans 12 more months. He really enjoyed his time there after a while. In 1765, he met a, a couple, Mary and Morley Unwin. Morley Unwin was also an evangelical pastor. And uh, um, Mrs. Unwin was eight years older than Cooper. For some reason, he moved in with them. And for the next 30 years, she would be like a mother to him. Um, in 1767, just a couple of years later, Morley died in a riding accident. He fell from his horse and died. <clears throat> and the nearby town of Olney was a, an evangelical preacher who heard about Mr. Morley, uh, Mr. Unwin's death, and he came over to console, um, to console everyone. This, this preacher's name was John Newton. So this is in 1767. So it's, uh, what, 36 years old. Uh, Newton says, why don't you guys move over to Olney? And so they come over to there, and, he, and, uh, and Newton takes a personal interest in Cooper. And, he, and, and Newton would go around visiting with people in his church, and he would take Cooper on these visits. And they would take long walks together. And Cooper says, let's write a hymnal. So we got... A collection of hymns here, 348 hymns. Uh, they're called the Olney Hymns. Pretty clever, huh? And uh, uh, Cooper wrote 68 of those hymns. <clears throat> so here you have 348 hymns, and, and the ones we remember are a handful from William Cooper and uh, Amazing Grace from John Newton. I think Newton has probably some other hymns in there that we would know. Um, I've, I've, I complain a lot, I don't know if you guys have gotten this, but I complain a lot about contemporary Christian music and just say, you know, it's not very good music, most of it. 
And my sister-in-law said, well, maybe contemporary Christian music doesn't get a fair break because of all the hymns that were written in the past, we have only a handful of them now. So it's not like you can say all the old hymns were good and the new hymns aren't any good. <clears throat> Most of the old hymns you've never heard. And like here's 348, and we've heard only a few of them. Anyway, um, Cooper wrote some great hymns. And uh, then in uh, 1773, he had what he called the fatal dream. Nobody really knows what this dream was. But, you know, it was, uh, what was it, 1763, when he had his, this big bout when he tried to commit suicide. Seems like things come back on him about every 10 years. In 1773, <clears throat> he has this dream, and, and it ruins him. It just ruins him. He never really recovers from this dream. I think he never, I think this is at the point in his life where he never went to church again after he had this dream. In, uh, in 1780, Newton moved to London. He kept his, he kept his friendship up with, with uh, Cooper, but he did not have that day-to-day -day contact any longer. <clears throat> it was during this time that he did have his, uh, he did write his major poetic projects. I thought this was an interesting quote. He says, I who scribble in rhyme to catch the triflers of the time and tell them truths divine and clear which couched in prose they would not hear. Goes back kind of to our Joni Mitchell example of how you can say things in poetry in ways you just can't say them in prose. I was at the Getty Conference <clears throat> a few years ago and Alistair Begg said, if you stand at the back of the church building, when people leave, they're not humming the sermon. They're humming the songs. So why do we sing here? You know, and uh, I think congregational singing is under attack right now in churches. It's just we're losing that tradition. <clears throat> um, the reason we sing is you can say things in verse in ways that it's hard to say them in prose. And so, so be glad that we sing. One of the poems he wrote was a poem called the, uh, <clears throat> well, before the task, he wrote this poem called The Journey of John Gilpin. Now, now get this one, write this one down. The Journey of John Gilpin. Uh, you can go to YouTube and, uh, and listen to it. It's about 10 minutes long. And find, there are several versions of it. Find the one by a guy named Tom Obedlam. There's bound to be a story behind a name like Obedlam. But uh, <laughs> anyway, find the, find the one that's recited by a guy named Tom Obedlam. It's, it's a uh, um, kind of a lighthearted poem. And I think you'll find it kind of, kind of fun to do. It's worth, it's worth 10 minutes to listen to it on your way home. <clears throat> um, it was a big hit. This poem was a big hit. It's like having the number one song in London. You know, it was sung or either sung or, or recited around London. So the big one was The Task. There were six books, 5,000 lines. And it started 
because of a lady named Lady Austin. Uh, lady Austin was a widow, and Cooper, Cooper befriended. She befriended Cooper, he befriended her, and uh, so he has another woman in his life. If you asked William Cooper, he would say there was nothing romantic here. Piper suggests that some of the things Cooper said indicated that she thought maybe there was something romantic there. But nothing ever, nothing ever happened. But Lady Austin was his muse, and she would give him, she would give him ideas, and she would feed him stuff. And I think she was the one who fed him the idea about John Gilpin, and she fed, and she said something about, why don't you write a poem about my sofa? And it turned into the task, six books, five thousand lines. See, John Piper didn't hold a candle to this guy. <laughs> he would start with that idea and come out with that. And this was his greatest work. And uh, he, uh, um, I, you know, I didn't ever see anybody ever say that Cooper ever received any money for his work. Somehow he published this, and I'm guessing maybe there was some money from it. But no one ever said that Cooper ever had a job since he, since he was a lawyer, that no one ever said anything about that. So I don't know if, if Cooper made any money from this or not, or how it, how it got published. But it did. Um, one of the things that came from the task is uh, that Cooper wrote about the countryside. He would write, you know, kind of a landscape artist in words, I guess. And I haven't read the task, sorry. But the, uh, but the influence of that poetry influenced people like uh, Robert Burns, William Wordsworth, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, or Samuel, Ta yeah, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who, you know, these people lived, they were, they were I think, referred to as the proto-romantic poets. And so it was, it was Cooper who influenced them to write that way. And, of course, you've read all their poetry, so you're familiar with it, I know. But, and just in case, just, just in case it was 53 years ago that you took English, uh, Burns wrote Old Anxiety, okay? And Wordsworth wrote a poem about daffodils that you probably, I don't remember it, I wandered lonely as a cloud. Does that ring any bells? Taylor, Taylor wrote the rhyme of the ancient mariner, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. And uh, he wrote, in Xanadu did Kublai Khan, the poem Kublai Khan, that was Taylor. These people got their influence from, from William Cooper. And so uh, uh, the, uh, um, I think that may be why he's referred to as the greatest of all English writers because of the people he influenced later. 1786, he has another suicide attempt. And... Uh, um, and, and it was at this point that he began to translate Homer and Madame Guillaume. Uh, in 1790, both his health and Mary Unwin's health began to fail. For the next six years, he tended to marry just like he would have attended to a dying mother. She died in 1796. 1799. Um, 
There was a, it, I didn't realize this. I thought a castaway is like, you know, if Long John Silver made you stay on the island with the treasure while everybody else left, I thought that was a castaway. A castaway is actually just a person who got, who fell overboard off a ship. And, uh, and that's what the term castaway means. And, uh, and it really happened. It appeared, I guess, in a newspaper somewhere that a, a ship, uh, in a storm, one of their crew members had been washed overboard. Imagine the terror of being washed overboard in the middle of the ocean. And they either, because of the storm, they could not turn around to go back and get him, or they never found him. You know, they couldn't, they never could see him. And so they lost this crew member, and that was in one of the newspapers. And, and that uh, caused Cooper to write a poem called The Castaway. And, and it seems to be, it, it was one of his last poems, if not his last poem. And he just does not give it up. This sense of being lost. Listen to this. He says, no voice divine, the storm allayed, no light propitious shone. When snatched from all effectual aid, we perished, each alone. But I, beneath the rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. He just doesn't give it up. He just is lost. Convinced that he's lost. In uh, 1800, he died. <clears throat> um, I've heard different accounts about his death, and one account that I've heard is that on his deathbed, he said, I'm saved after all. Uh, those were his last words. I, I couldn't find anything on that. One account is that the, a man who was tending to him left the room to get something. When he came back, Cooper had died, uh, but he had a smile on his face. Was, was he relieved to be released from this life, or was he relieved because he realized that, that he was saved? So, if you look at Cooper's life, his family was given to melancholy and mental illness. Uh, he, he lived in a family where only two children survived infancy. He never recovered from his mother's death. It, you know, speaking of 53 years, it was 53 years after his mother's death, he saw a picture of her and wrote a poem about his mother. He never wrote a poem about his father. So what do we take from this? And why do we study this? And why are we going to study these biographies? And why would it be important to look at uh, the poetry of a depressed poet? Well, I don't want to just parrot Piper here. Piper draws several conclusions here. And, and I, I, I don't want to just say what Piper said. So I tried to come up with some stuff. But one point Piper makes here. Uh, and I, these are my words, that if you want to see the poems of a depressed person, you could read the Psalms. You know, David says, my pillow is soaked in tears. And, uh, and Piper brings up Psalm 40, verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and will trust the Lord. That's why you... you can benefit from reading the poetry of a depressed person. 
or a person who's experienced a lot of sadness. Uh, things, uh, Piper brings this up. I'll, I'll bring it up also. Love your children dearly. Let them know that you love them. I think it might have made a difference if Cooper had known that his father loved him or if his father had loved him, if that was the case. Um, what I would like to ask is, how would, how would you counsel someone? If you know someone who is like this, convinced that they're not saved, um, someone who suffers from deep depression um, and has done so all their lives, how are you going to counsel them? What, how, how do you counsel yourself? Maybe if you're feeling this way, what can you do? Uh, do you remember that list in the, the classes? I've, I've shown this list twice. There was a list of 10 cognitive distortions that depressed people tend to have. And I, I, I'm sparing you this morning from seeing that list again. But um, those things are really, those, those things, I, you, you need to work through the questions that these cognitive distortions ask you. And, and a, a thing that we have that the typical person does not have is that when we're looking at the world and we're trying to interpret the world, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. And that's what makes the difference. Um, I, I adopted my three sons. I have two nephews who are adopted and a niece who is adopted. And uh, um, something I came across one time through through God's sovereignty, because I wasn't looking for it, I just saw it, is that adopted children are always insecure about their adoption. Uh, am I really part of this family, or am I just an appendage? And uh, I, I don't look at my kids as adopted. I don't think about it that way. I don't think of my niece that way. I don't think of my nephews that way. I don't think anyone else in the family does, but do they know that? You've got to let your children know that you love them. Stay close to your children. And then another thing is that you are adopted. You are adopted into a family. Do you feel secure in that adoption? Well, one of the first things I think is we need to say that feelings are not reality, and we need to look at what is reality, and, uh, and how do I know what reality is? How do I know what reality is? How can I put my finger on it? And, and as evangelical Christians, we ask the author of reality. We don't go on our feelings. We don't start speculating. And I think one of the things that might have messed up Cooper where does the New Testament say that a person who commits suicide has committed the sin of Judas? And how did the eBay arrive at that conclusion? Um, <clears throat> you ask the author of reality when you want to know what reality is. A couple of things I thought about as I was getting ready. For the past several weeks, Rob and Dennis took us through um, this, this Machen book and the need to have sound doctrine. Sometimes when I listen to theological discussions, I think, well, okay, this is getting a little bit arcane here. We're, we're devolving into abstract theological discussions. What good are theological discussions? And it's so that we can put our doctrine 
up on the table and look at it and go, boy, that's some sound doctrine there. Don't we have sound doctrine? Isn't that great stuff? What good is sound doctrine? And in a conclusion that I've reached, is sound doctrine is an accurate perception of God. That's how you know you have sound doctrine. I mean, that's not how you know you have sound doctrine. When you have sound doctrine, that's what you have. You have an accurate perception of God. And we want to worship God as he has revealed himself to us. We want to worship the real God accurately. And we find that by seeing what he has revealed to us. When we make up a God, we start, we start or when we speculate about who God is, we, we start making our God up. In Cooper's case, he made up a God who could not be, displ- who could not be pleased. Now, there are churches that do that too, make up gods who cannot be pleased. The other error that we make is we make up a God who cannot be displeased, which is what Rob and Dennis took us through, is, is that we, we tend to make up a God who cannot be displeased. Good doctrine gives us an accurate perception of God. So what has God revealed about himself and what can you talk to yourself with when you're feeling down and, and maybe unsure? <clears throat> Look at some passages from the Bible. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. My sheep hear my voice. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Sorry, guys, I don't, I don't know what this is. I think I'm just glad that I'm, I'm, I'm almost through. <laughs> this finally sunk in with me last Sunday. Are you plugging in to Blake's Galatians study? Are you plugging in here? He said it a couple of times. He has said it a couple of times in this series. The all-sufficient work of Christ. Is that an accurate quote? The all-sufficient work of Christ. The atonement of Christ. You can't add anything to that atonement. You can't take anything away from that atonement. I, I really want to suggest that you get involved in this study of Galatians. This is a tremendous book, tremendous letter. And uh, what you get out of it, like, like my tendency, is to find all the proof texts so I can defend myself against people. And it finally hit me that this is not a book about proof texts. This is a book about your comfort as a Christian, that you can rest in the Savior's arms um, and... Uh, and know that this work is sufficient, and uh, and nothing can take it away from you. <laughs> Think about this one. Uh, Jesus goes into a hostile country where Jews are not welcome, and uh, uh, where Jews often cannot find a hotel to stay and a place to stay. Jesus drags his apostles into that country. He goes up to a woman who is living your typical chaotic postmodern life, and he brings salvation to that woman. 
And, and when he looks at the people of the town, he says about those people, the fields are white for harvest. It, when you think about when you think about what Jesus did when he came into the world, he came into a world that was not sympathetic to him, that was not going to be hospitable to him, and he brought us salvation. He came to seek and save the lost. That's what God has revealed about himself, that you don't have to grovel and make it work. He brings salvation to you. To, you know, reading, reading, bio, reading biographies, uh, Oscar Wilde, the playwright Oscar Wilde, who was, uh, you know, he's not somebody we would, uh, we would hold up as an example. Uh, but I think he was right on this. He said, biography lands a new terror to death. And uh, um, what what people going to do when they read your biography? And uh, in a cancel culture, they tear down your statue. You know? That's the culture we live in. Think about 2,000 years after it happened, every day someone reads about the day Peter denied the Lord. There's a biography that would would make you tremble. Um, what sin did William Cooper commit that was more serious than denying the Lord when the Lord needed him the most? And I think uh, it's really good to go to the place where Peter met Jesus, uh, I mean, where Jesus met Peter on the shore. It was Jesus who initiated that conversation. It was Jesus who went to Peter and restored Peter. Uh, Peter didn't have to grovel. Jesus initiated that. Uh, these are the things that God has revealed about himself, that he initiates things with us, and that's where we get our comfort. One time Kelly and I watched this documentary, These Mountaineers. <laughs> These mountaineers took uh, five young men and taught them mountaineering so that they could take them up Mount Everest. And the unique thing about this was that these five young men were blind, every one of them. And they took them, they got them almost to the top. They were ready to make the final ascent. One of them had gotten sick, and the other four said, well, if he can't go, we don't want to go either. And so, but they almost made it to the top, five blind kids. One of these kids, was, I think he lived in Tibet. He was a Buddhist. He wanted to be a Buddhist monk in the Buddhist belief system. Uh, because they believe in reincarnation, he was blind because of sins he had committed in a, in a former life. And and he says I, he says in this documentary, I don't know what I did, but it must have been pretty bad. Well, that's what everybody around him thought also. And uh, he was walking down the street. It shows him in this documentary walking down the street, and he bumps into somebody, and they start. Why can't you be more careful? You know, why don't you watch where you're going? And, uh, and he gets this terrible treatment because he's blind, because his blindness comes from a sin that he committed in a prior life. That, suddenly, I understood John 9. Um, when the apostles and Jesus come across a blind man, and they say, Master, who's, who sinned, his parents or him? And Jesus said it was it, neither of them sinned. 
it was, it was that the works of God might be displaced in him, or might, might be displayed. It's the first time I understood John 9. I just, it just finally sunk in with me that these people had suffered all their lives. They may have suffered ostracism all their lives because your son is blind because of some sin you've committed. They may have felt their son was blind because of some sin they've committed. He may have felt that he was blind because of some sin he had committed. They had gone through all that. This man was an adult. And Jesus said, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God uses our sorrows to toss us back against his breast. And uh, um, he also, I think, uses this so that he can display his glory in what he does with people's lives. So as you think about William Cooper, um, this guy really had a tough life. And uh, one, one thing I want to say, be sure that I say is this. I, I, listened, to, uh, I listened to a couple of clips from uh, David Pallison and Ed Welch. They are, you know, Pallison was the director of the Christian Counseling Education Foundation, and Welch is on the faculty there. Uh, Welch said that his father... He said there was no doubt that his father loved Jesus, but his father suffered from depression. And Welch said there was nothing he ever said. I don't think that his father, that ever changed anything his father thought about himself. And uh, <clears throat> if you suffer from depression, if you have tendencies this direction, um, Pallison says depression is a multi-factor problem. It's not just one particularly. It's a, it, it could, there could be some physical causes. There could be a whole lot of causes. But one thing that, that does, that Cooper, one problem that Pallison mentions that Cooper had is Cooper just had all these tragedies, all these tragedies in his life, and it, it all stacked up on him. And then Piper makes a final, a final point that I want to cover. He says, sing the gospel to the deaf and don't stop. Sing the gospel to the deaf. The person who is depressed, who just cannot hear what you're saying. Sing the gospel to the deaf. And, and he quotes Psalm 139, 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is as bright as the day. Today we're going to sing two William Cooper songs. The first two songs we'll sing. We'll sing, uh, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, and uh, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Now there are uh, five or six or seven Cooper hymns in the book, which the only, one, the only ones I really recognized were these two uh, and then we're going to sing Psalm 139 also. So uh, I just, uh, and, and that's it. I just, uh, I hope, uh, I, I kind of had a new take on Psalm 139 after I read about William Cooper. And that's it. So.
I want to encourage you. We'll, we'll be doing some biographies. Next week, we're going to do Hudson Taylor. And then others will be up here with the other biographies. And uh, we'll, uh, I, I hope this proves to be a beneficial study for you. And that's it. You're dismissed. I had not seen these verses right here. Um, you know, when when I was singing 139, I was just thinking, well, there's nothing we can do to get away from God. He always knows us. He always knows where we are. But when he, uh, when I read this, uh, even if even even when the darkness overwhelms me, uh, it's not dark to you. So, all right. Thanks. <clears throat>